0: This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfindley.org. I always wanted a brother. I grew up with two older sisters, and that meant I was left out a lot of the time. We had, we had time to spare, we were, would play games, and, and they had each other. And they would play house, and I would be by myself with my Hot Wheels cars. If I wanted to join in, I would have to be like the pet dog or the pet monkey while they played house. It just wasn't, wasn't what I wanted. And so I, would, I remember asking my, my parents, Please, have, can we have a baby brother? And my parents would get this weird look between them, and they would both go, No. And I never quite understood that until I got older i I had an idea that it had something to do with me as the youngest, like, no, no, we can't handle another one of you, but well, there was more to the story. I remember I remember how how desperately I pleaded with them and just, just got that answer. no way. find find ways to amuse yourself. We're not going through all this just for for you to have a friend, so get over it uh, but Today's story that we want to talk about is about two brothers, twins, actually, uh, who, who were born to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, Isaac is part of a uh, uh, historical lineage in the people of Israel, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became Israel. Um, Isaac is, the, the, as a boy, the one Abraham took up on Mount Sinai, ready to sacrifice as a test from God and was spared. Now, Isaac now has married Rebekah. She's pregnant with twins who, who are moving a lot inside of her. And, and God said to her, they're, they're moving because this is, this is indicative of their lives. They, they'll, they'll, there's tension here. Uh, there'll be nations of people. One of those nations will be stronger. One of these twins will serve the other. And so when it was time for the boys to be born, one came out first red, hairy as a baby, And the next one, smooth skin. The first to come out, his name was Esau. The second was Jacob. As the boys uh, got older, they they were very different people, even as twins. Esau, the hairy one, loved the outdoors. Loved to just range the countryside, be out in the wild. He became a hunter. Learned to live off the land. Was a real outdoorsy guy. Jacob, on the other hand, Stayed close to the tents. He learned to tend the flocks. He learned to prepare meals and care for people. Now, the difference in personality aligned each of those boys with one of their parents. Isaac, who loved the taste of wild game, loved his food, favored Esau and his wild life, his outdoorsiness. Rebecca, on the other hand, really appreciated her son Jacob the relationship that they had. And you, know, you know what that's like when you've got kids in the kitchen with you and you're making meals together. There's a bond that forms as you're just doing life together. And, and Rebecca grew to love her son Jacob. Now, there's also this idea that while they each loved one of their children and favored one of their children, they, there, was, there was a little bit of, of, I don't know if jealousy is the right word, of, of tension when they looked over at the other twin that the other Spouse favored. There's difficulty there. Now, we don't have a lot of details about, de- about childhood, about how they grew We just have a couple of stories that I want to share with you as we move through this. The first uh, is when the boys were a little bit older. Jacob is, is at the fire. He's got a kettle hanging over the flames. He's stirring carefully. The aroma of, of, of fresh stew is wafting around the camp. Esau has been out, traveling, walking. And whether or not he's hunting, we don't know. But he's come back from this journey into the wild, empty-handed. And he's been out for for long enough that he is famished, exhausted. And and he's, he's not had anything to eat in so long that he's feeling weak because of it. And he stumbles into camp, and he sees his brother stirring this pot of stew. And he says, whoa, I, I've, been, I've been out. I haven't had anything to eat. I need some of that. Please give me a bowl of that stew. And his brother said, not, not just yet. If you want some of my stew, why don't you sell me your birthright? Now, it's the custom at the time for uh, families of the people of Israel to, to divide the inheritance from the father to his son's and give the firstborn a double portion. So Isaac with two sons would have divided his inheritance into thirds. And to Esau, the oldest, he would have given two thirds, along with the responsibility to care for him and Rebekah when they got old. So yes, they have more of an inheritance, but there's a responsibility that goes with it. Jacob, as the younger son, even though they're twins, even though we're talking about seconds apart, is looking at a significantly smaller inheritance because of that turn of events. Has he been hoping for more? Has he been looking for an opportunity? Has he been jealous of his brother's standing in the family? We don't know. But we do know that because he has this thing that his brother wants, he uses it as an opportunity to bargain. Sell me your birthright, and I'll give you a bowl of stew. Esau is so hungry, you and I would say, I I would kill for a bowl of stew. He says, no, no, no. If I don't get a bowl of stew, I'm going to die. I am so exhausted from hunger that if I don't have sustenance, I will, I, I'm afraid that these are my last moments. A birthright means nothing to me if I'm going to die. Just give me some stew. You can have whatever you want. And so for a bowl of stew that will sustain him for just a few hours, he trades off this responsibility, this, this, this birthright that would have provided a, a double portion of inheritance to him. And Jacob took that opportunity, manipulating his brother. And then we fast forward. The next, the next significant story we read about these, these two young men is when Isaac is getting older, and he's starting to show signs of age. He, he no longer can see. He's lost vision entirely. He's in his tent, dependent on other people to bring him food, to, to provide for him. Uh, and, and he knows that his, his days are numbered. And another custom of the time is that a father, when he was close to death, would call in his oldest son and pass a blessing on to his oldest son, a blessing that would point him toward the future. This, this son of his would point him to who who the father saw him becoming. And it was a very important rite of passage for a young man uh, of the people of Israel. And sometimes fathers would would bless all of their children, but they would, they would give a significant blessing to the oldest. And so Isaac called Esau in and and said, the time has come for me to pass my blessing on to you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and and find some wild game. And I want you to prepare that dish that I love. You know know the one, my favorite. Bring me me that food. And as I eat with you, I'm going to pass my blessing on to you. Now is the time. And so Esau rushed out of the tent, gathered up his things and set out into the country to find this wild game. What he didn't know is that Rebecca, his mother, was eavesdropping on the tent, listening to what Isaac said to his son, Esau. And she called Jacob to her and said, "Hey, here's what's happening. Your father is about to give the blessing to your brother." And he's made this plan. He sent Esau out to get some wild game. Here's what I want you to do. Go, go to the herds and bring me a goat." I'm going to prepare the meal that your father likes. I know what it is. Don't worry. I'm going to prepare this meal. What I want you to do after you bring me this goat is I want you to put on some of Esau's clothes. After I I prepare the meal, I want you to take some of the skin from the goat that has rough hair on it, because you know how hairy your brother is. And any place that your father might touch you, I want you to put some of this goat hide on your hands, on the back of your neck. We're going to pass you off as your brother, and you're going to get the blessing that your father thinks he's going to give to to Esau. And so Jacob set out to prepare himself. Rebecca went and prepared this meal, gave the food to Jacob, and he went into his father's tent and said, Father, I'm here with your food, and I'm ready for my blessing. Now, Isaac is getting old. He's losing the use of his senses, but he's not stupid. And he says to his son Jacob, how did you manage to find and hunt and bring in an animal so quickly? Uh, Well, God blessed me with this catch of food, and it's because of the grace of God that I have this meal so quickly prepared for you. Hmm, well, come here, let me, let me touch your hand, son. And Isaac says to his son, are you, are you really Esau? And Jacob lied to him. Oh yeah, I'm Esau. Well, the, the hands feel like Esau, but the voice is Jacob. Are you sure? Bring me, that, bring me that food that you brought in. And when you do, lean in and give me a kiss. And Isaac, without being able to see, caught a whiff of his son. But as he breathed in, he breathed in the scent of the outdoors on the clothes that he was wearing, clothes from Esau's tent. And he said, oh, the smell of the field. And he began to bless his son, talking about his future, about the the children and descendants he would have, about the nation that his family would become and that his brother would would serve him. And And he spoke those words to Jacob instead of to Esau. Having received the blessing that should have gone to his older brother, Jacob gathered up what was left of the meal and left the tent. And as soon as he had walked out the door, Esau arrived with the meal he'd prepared and walked in and spoke to his father, "Father, here I am with, with the meal that you requested, I'm ready for my blessing." Wait, what? Isaac was shaken by this news, literally, violently shaking. I just blessed someone else. Who are you? Well, it's me, Esau. And now the voice matches the smell and the touch. And he knows, Isaac knows that he's just given the blessing that belonged to Esau to Jacob. And Esau knows that Jacob has everything that should have belonged to him, the birthright, and now the blessing. He said, please, Father, certainly you have some words left for me. You have some kind of blessing you can give. And Isaac said, well, I've already promised your brother that you would serve him. And he began to speak a blessing into Esau's life, a very limited blessing, talking to him about his future, about the family and the nation that would come from him, but acknowledging the fact that their relationship was already determined by this blessing. Esau was so upset about the news that he left his father's tent just fuming, deciding to himself. I know dad's going to die soon. And once, once we lay him to rest, once our time of mourning is over, I'm going to kill that brother of mine. I'm going to kill him. Only this isn't an internal dialogue. He's actually talking out loud. And his mother, ever clever, is again listening to all the things that are happening in and around Isaac in his tent. And she heard Esau say out loud, once I'm done crying over my father, I'm going to kill my brother. And so again, she called Jacob in and said, okay, we've got you the birthright. We've got you the blessing. Now you need to run because your brother is furious. You need to go. Now my 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 brother Laban lives in the land of Ur. You can go and live among his people for a while. You'll be safe there. You'll be taken care of and after a while, maybe Esau's anger will subside and you'll be able to return and you can, you can reestablish a life here among your family sometime down the road. I'll send word to you when that time comes. And Jacob went and lived with his uncle, hoping for a day when he could return home. Now this, this journey ended up taking 20 some years as he went and found his uncle, lived among his uncles, served in his uncle's household, received wages, married wives, had children, established a family, and then established incredible wealth. And in the process, tension arose between he and his uncle Laban. And it was time for Jacob to leave with his family. And God spoke to Jacob and said, what you're doing is the right thing for you. You need to go back to the land of Canaan, the back, back to the land of your family. Go back. Even though your brother's there, that's where you need to go. And that's where I want to pick up our story. Now, you probably have heard this, these stories of Jacob and Esau before. These, are, these aren't new to you. This is a, a great memory of the childhood stories you've heard in children's church and in Sunday school classes uh, for a long time. Uh, but but I, want, I want to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 32 if you have a Bible with you. The words will be on the screen. If you have the U Version app and you want to search under events for Parkview Finley, you'll find the scripture printed there. I want to really focus on what happened after that as Jacob and Esau came together, after this tension, after this rift, after this divide that literally separated their family for miles, living in separate places for 20 years, not speaking, not interacting. What happened after that? We're going to begin in verse 3. As Jacob returned back to the land of Canaan, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you're to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. And now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, the flocks and herds and camels as well. And he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the other group that's left may escape. And so Jacob is thinking that all these things that his brother said, 20 years ago, are going to come to pass that his brother is coming with this force of 400 men. And in Jacob's mind, this is an army. His brother is coming to attack and destroy him. So he's hoping that half of his family and half of his wealth might possibly escape. Jacob prayed to God for protection. And he spent the night where he was. He sent herds ahead of him as a gift to his brother, hoping to pacify Esau, hoping in some ways, in some way he might find favor in his brother's eyes after all these years. And he instructed the servants to let Esau know that after he received the gifts, Jacob would be coming behind them. And he spent the night again in the camp. And then Genesis 33, we read about the next morning. Jacob looked up. And there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, the two female servants, put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And Jacob himself went on ahead, and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. "'Who, who are these with you?' he asked. "'Jacob answered, "'They are the children God has graciously given your servant.' "'Then the female servants and their children "'approached and bowed down. "'Next Leah and her children came and bowed down. "'Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. "'Esau asked, "'What's the meaning of all the flocks and herds that I met?' "'To find favor in your, in your eyes, my lord,' he said. "'But Esau said, "'I, I already have plenty, my brother.' keep what you have for yourself. No, please," said Jacob. "If I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me and I have all I need." And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Now, the last thing we read about these two brothers and their relationship together, is that after this, this reunion, their father finally died. Now, remember, 20-some years ago when he was on his deathbed and blessing his sons, he survived all this time while Jacob was away. And now that they've returned, they went together and they buried their father. And they went through this process of mourning together, side by side, united Remembering the life of their father and the legacy they left for them. Now That's a a very strong end to a very long divide. Maybe you know what that feels like to have someone in your family that you have been separated from. Maybe not miles apart. Maybe somebody who lives close by you. That there's so much tension between the two of you that you feel very far apart. And maybe it is somebody that you, that you don't have attention between, but they live very far apart. My family, my extended family, we haven't all been together in the same place for over a year and a half. The last time we were all together was Christmas 2019. Now, that's not because we have this long-standing argument and we can't stand each other. It, it's literally because there's some very specific health concerns among my family, and we've been very careful about, about not affecting uh, one another. And all the same, I feel the weight of that separation. It's a heavy thing to not have the connection of family that you once shared. Maybe you experienced difficulty that, that separated your family, much like Jacob and Esau. Maybe you know the simple truth that conflict can create long separation between family. And we talked last week about the kind of conflict that separates family. Maybe, maybe you haven't have had that experience Maybe among your family, you've, you've had something that not only drove a wedge, but that wedge has remained. Maybe it's a discussion about faith. You have a relative who, who does not believe and you care enough about them to talk to them about, about the Lord and their need for Jesus. But every time that you reach out to them, instead of, instead of helping them come closer to the Lord, it feels like It feels like you're pushing them farther and farther away, and faith has become something that's separating you. Maybe you and a relative have differing beliefs or practices, or denominationalism has separated you, and and because of those differences of beliefs, you, you don't see eye to eye and you feel very separate and alone. Maybe it's political views that have separated your family. You're on very opposite ends. And when you get together for meals, when you get together for holidays, Instead of seeing the person that you care about, what you see is the ideals that they stand for. You see the things that you can't agree with. And it's very hard for you to have a conversation about anything else. And you know that as you're sitting and eating, one or the other of you is gonna start sniping comments about current events, about elections, about people in office. And you know it's just going to incite an argument, it's just gonna explode in the middle of that meal. And you're going to leave angry and you're going to leave upset. And again, it's going to be this difficult thing for your family. Caught in between this argument that's unnecessary. And yet, it's the thing that's dividing you. Maybe it's a life direction, decisions that you've made that someone in your family doesn't agree with. And every time you get together, you feel the weight of Pressure of, of comment after comment about the things that someone else doesn't agree with about your life, about a relationship that you're in, about a career choice, about a decision that you've made. Or maybe you feel very strongly about a relative who you can see is making poor choices and you want to really help them. And yet, every time you try and encourage them, every time you try and intervene in their lives, you feel resistance, you feel them pushing back, pushing away, and you know. You've gone too far. Maybe something very dramatic has happened in your family, and there is a real offense that's taken place, something that's been very damaging to you personally. And you want to let it go, but every time you're together, you're reminded of what happened. You're reminded of what was said, and you can't. And it hurts so much. It's damaged you so much that you're having trouble just being together. Maybe you're the one who caused the offense, and you know you've done wrong. And you've made an apology, but every time you're together, you feel this cold tension, this closed offness. And you feel like that that divide can never be repaired. And you wonder how you can move past it. Now our story today from Jacob and Esau, we see examples of how this works. Of Jacob who was absolutely in the wrong. Taking from his brother what rightfully belonged to him. Manipulating the situation. Lying to his parents to take to improve himself at his brother's expense. And Esau, having been wronged, had every right to be angry. Now, threatening to kill his brother, that's a little extreme. (laughs) Yeah, probably over the line. But it represents what happens to us around family. How family, sometimes more than anybody else, can push us beyond the realm, beyond the limits of restraint. And there's something about family that, that they have a way of evoking the most extreme emotional responses from us, of of pushing us to a place where we become someone very different than we normally are. And our responses don't sound like us. They don't look like us, and yet we can't find the strength to overcome the place that we've been pushed to. When you find yourself in this kind of long-standing separation, whether you're the one who's done wrong or someone else has done wrong to you, whether you've both been wrong, the, the separation really affects us. The, the tension among family, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, it, it, it creates in us this brokenness when our relationships aren't whole, this, this incompleteness. Have you noticed how that is the case in your life when relationships are strained and broken? That there's stress. As you worry about the situation, as the pressure mounts, and you turn over the past events in your mind again and again and again, you think about how you were treated. You think about all the things that were said to you, and you play them over again and over again and over again, and you think about the words you said in response, the things that you did in response, and you're frustrated, because you know that's not the real you. You know the way you respond, it doesn't reflect how you really feel. And there's disappointment there. There's anger, there's frustration. And in the course of replaying those events, you discover all the things that you wish you would have said, if you just had time to, to calm down and think about it. All the things that you, you would have said to, to resolve this tension maybe or to win the argument. I don't know how many arguments I've won in my mind <laughs> after thinking about them again and again that I really didn't win when they happened. And not that I lost, but just that the tension remained, that things were left unresolved. And I, and I just genuinely wish they, I would have been a, a bigger, better person in those moments. Sometimes it's fear that affects us the most. As we anxiously think about what's going to happen the next time we see those people, and we think about the the comments that have been made, the way that we've been treated, and we know that we can expect the same kind of thing to happen again. And so we play in our minds what might happen the next time we get together with family, and we're afraid to enter into those interactions. We're afraid of what, what we'll say and do in response. We're, we're, we're filled with fear, much like Jacob was, thinking about his brother coming with 400 men <laughs> ready to attack. We find it hard to overcome those thoughts. Maybe it even creates in you a bit of depression as you, as you mourn the loss of those relationships. This family, you think about, should be the place a place of safety, a place of encouragement, a place of wholeness to be restored and healed from your life in the world. You would come back home and really feel that connectedness. And when that's not there, when that place is, is a place of tension, it can create a lot of grief and even depression in our lives, altering our outlook and our approach to life. Maybe it's isolation that's affecting you most as you've been separated from family, as you feel the the distance in your relationships, instead of reaching out to other sources of strength and, and encouragement and advice, you find yourself pushing away from people as you worry about the distance in your relationships and sometimes even wonder, maybe it's me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And you push away from not just your family, but other people, other friends, other places of comfort in your life, and you, and you begin to feel that extreme isolation and aloneness, and you know you have to do something to resolve those things. You have to find a way to come back and restore those relationships. But it's not an easy process. And the idea we want to come to today is the idea of rest, reconciliation. The families are brought back together, through the process of reconciliation. Relationships are restored and rebuilt through this process of reconciliation. And there are steps that have to be taken when we think about coming back together with family. There are very specific steps that we have to take. We can't just sweep offenses under the rug. We can't just ignore the things that happened and and hope that they won't happen again. Those tensions will remain and they will emerge again and create difficulty in your relationships. You can't ignore what took place. You have to be willing to walk through this process. And in order for reconciliation to take place, first, what has to happen is both parties in the relationship have to want to come back together. They have to have a desire for things to get better. Now, that's a difficult thing, especially if one party is the offending party and the other party has been offended, because it might take some convincing. It might take It might take the person in the wrong coming to convince that other person of their intentions, of the value that they see in them. And once those two acknowledge that they're willing to work, the next thing that needs to happen is the wrong needs to be identified and addressed. And the offending party has to be willing to say, here's where I was wrong. Here's what I did, and I know that that hurt you. The thing we find out, though, is as we begin to address wrong, is we discover just how wrong the wrong is, how deeply it's hurt us. And we discover not only has it hurt us, but it has caused us to do wrong as well. And so even when the offending party acknowledges wrong, the offended party also sometimes has some wrong to admit to as well. As we're pouring things out, as we're being open and honest and disclosing these things, we find that there are things that we both need to do wrong. And often in family, when this divide occurs, it's because both of those parties have been in the wrong. And this idea of addressing and identifying wrong means that, that, that everybody involved has to talk about how they have hurt the others. And then those wrongs, need to be amended. We have to make amends for the things that we do wrong, and that includes one, apology, where we genuinely say, I'm sorry, you didn't deserve that. But amends is more than apology. When we make amends, we prove to the other person that we are willing to work to no longer do those things. And that involves proving ourselves and earning trust and making changes in our lives to make sure that we don't go back down that same road again, that we'll no longer be that offensive person that we were, that we care enough about that relationship, about that person, to be a better person than we were, to, to be better than the things that we did and the things that we said. And sometimes we, we have to make payment for the things that we've done wrong. We have to, to resolve the harm that's been done. And as we move through that, those, those amends, those commitments, have to be accepted by both parties as they move forward to reestablish their relationship. And, and when reconciliation happens, the, the relationship that, that they come back to is very often defined under new terms. Let's use Jacob and Esau as our example. Jacob was the offending party to Esau. They came back together, and Jacob, in his language, very clearly started to acknowledge that he was in the wrong. Tell my Lord Esau that his servant Jacob is coming, and I'm hoping to find favor in his eyes. And he sent gifts ahead to his brother, knowing that he had taken significant wealth. He was making payment for those wrongs. And they came back together. Now we don't hear a lot of the acceptance and acknowledgement of wrong. We don't hear a lot about forgiveness. What we see is that where Jacob was afraid and expected, to be treated poorly. What he found instead was a brother with an embrace. And they wept together as both of them truly wanted this this divide to be closed. They wanted their relationship restored. but, But they were very different people at this time. Very different people. No longer children under the household of their father. These are both men with their own households coming back together who would live in the same vicinity and interact with one another in very different ways than they did as boys. Their relationship would be completely different. And yet, they had spent time apart and realized the value of coming back together. As we grow back together in relationship with people, we need to recognize the value of time. I want to say a couple of things about time here and now. The first thing is this. Time does not heal all wounds. We can't just put things off and hope that if we provide space and time, that, that other people will forget the wrong that we've done and that things will just automatically get better if we give them space. That doesn't happen. But on the other side of the coin, we have to acknowledge that most wounds take time to heal, and that even when we properly walk through the process of reconciliation, even when we properly care for people and and communicate to them that we will be, that we'll treat them appropriately, that we'll speak to them, appropriately, that we want this relation to be restored, we have to give them time to heal from the offenses that we've done. We have to give them time to heal from the wrong that we've caused in their lives. And we also have to take time ourselves to heal. And the time is a necessary part of the process of truly coming back together and building a healthy relationship with this person again. Now, reconciliation isn't something that we come to naturally. Our natural responses are jealousy, anger, bitterness, carrying grudges. We have a hard time with this concept of, of reconciliation. We have this, a very hard time with the idea of forgiveness, especially when we're hurt. And the wonderful thing about talking about reconciliation is that we don't have to wonder about how it happens. We don't have to make these things up. We have an incredible example that comes to us from God about what reconciliation looks like. Paul wrote about this in the book of 2 Corinthians. He was writing to the church about their relationship with God. Here's what he said in chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now here's the example. God made us to live in relationship with him. And we did wrong. We chose sin over him and broke our relationship with God because of what we wanted to do. God loves us enough to want to restore that relationship, to redefine that relationship, to bring us back to him. And here's the thing about God, not demanding that we make payment for our own sin, he made amends for us and sent his son to pay for our sin and to wash that sin away with his blood. And he lived a perfect life and sacrificed himself for our sakes so that we could come back into relationship with him. That's the reconciliation process with God. That we, we each identify the wrong that is sin. And God said, I don't want this to be a part of your life anymore. I want our relationship to go on with you not sinning. And I'm willing to pay the price to make that possible for you so that we can be restored. It's an incredible thing for us when we accept that gift of grace through the blood of Christ and are baptized in his name, that, that we discover what reconciliation feels like. We discover what reconciliation looks like. And then we get the idea of what we need to do in our lives as we're called to the ministry of reconciliation, as we're called to be ambassadors of this message. As if God were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. And there are times where we talk to people about their need to come back to a relationship with God, to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. There are other times where we need to demonstrate what this looks like, where people need to understand how God can do this through our example as we learn the process of forgiveness, as we choose to reconcile our relationships that are broken, as we choose to help people understand what this wholeness feels like, what this completeness is, looks like by being an example of the love and grace of Christ in our relationships. Helping people understand their need to be restored to God. That's what we have here. This, This incredible responsibility to care for people and to care for them not just because we love them and we value them but to care for them because we truly want them. We truly desire for them to know what it is that God will do for them as well. This morning, I want to invite you to think about your life, to think about your family in particular, and to think about the ways that God is calling you to step into the gap of the relationships that exist between you and family, and to be the person to demonstrate what forgiveness looks like. Not forgiveness that just erases all wrongs and continues on as if they never happened, but, but forgiveness that, that steps into that awkward space between people and acknowledges hurt and wrong and addresses it honestly and openly so that you truly can grow back together. Maybe there's someone on your mind right now and God is putting that person in your mind to push you to the understanding of what you need to think about doing over the next couple of days, over the next couple of weeks. Stepping into the gap of brokenness in your relationship and choosing to mend that relationship appropriately. Maybe God is laying on your heart his love for you and the forgiveness that he wants to extend to you if you would be willing to accept the price that was paid by his son, and be reconciled to God. This morning, if you have a decision to make about your relationship with Jesus, if there's anything I can pray for you about, I would invite you to come forward as we stand and sing together. Please stand.